You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're here to empower, educate, and encourage women to start talking about money. Discover more at fidelity.com slash it's time. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey, it's Jean Chatsky, and I gotta say, I love the lead-in that we use for this show, but rarely has it been more appropriate because today we are talking about talking about money. In fact, we're talking about talking about many important things in your life. And it's time to think about whether you consider yourself a good conversationalist or whether you shy away from those tough conversations, especially when it turns to a taboo topic like money. I'm just shaking my head here because over the weekend, my husband and I do talk about money on a fairly regular basis, but we had one of those he's going to kill me. We had a wicked fight over the weekend because I was burying something that it was totally my fault and I was being passive aggressive about it. And let's just admit it and get it out there on the table. But I, I was burying something that bothered me. And if I had just said to him, hey, we need to adjust this, it would have been fine. But instead I started nitpicking around the edges. And instead of a rational conversation, we had a nasty fight and it was fine we you know i love my husband he loves me who knows why but we made up before we went to sleep at night and now everybody's listening and thinking did they have makeup sex aren't they <laughs> there everybody is listening and thinking and that is not where i was I'm going that. with that conversation <laughs> my guest in the studio is Celeste Headley who i should have consulted before i got all passive aggressive on him over the weekend because Celeste is an expert on conversation. She is the host of On Second Thought at Georgia Public Broadcasting in Atlanta. She's been a host and correspondent for NPR and PRI since 2006. Her new book is called We Need to Talk, How to Have Conversations That Matter, and it is a guide to the lost art of conversation. You've probably seen her TEDx talk on this very subject. 11 million people have seen it, so if you haven't, it's time to watch. It was listed as the number one must-watch TED Talk by glass door. Celeste, thank you for being here. Thank you for laughing at my story. (laughs) Thank you. It's good to be here. It is really nice to have you. Tell me a little bit about you. How did you um, become an expert in conversation? You know, by by accident, you know, I, I am a professional conversationalist, right? I mean, that's basically what an interviewer is. And I wanted to get better at that. And so I started doing research from some of the best minds giving me advice on how to have better conversations. But what happened was when I took it into the studio and tried it out, it was terrible advice. And I started wondering, did they actually try this stuff out or is this all just philosophical gut 
feelings or something. Like, they couldn't have tried this out. What were they telling you? You know, the the look directly into somebody's eyes and nod and say, "Uh uh-huh, to show that you're paying attention and summarize what you just heard from the other person. And every time I tried that out, it just made things really awkward. I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm looking straight into your eyes right now, and it's uncomfortable. I know, it's a little weird. Yeah, it's uncomfortable. You should back off just a little bit. (laughs) Exactly. It's too intense. So that's, so I, I said, you know what, I just need to figure this out for myself. Um, and so that's what I've done for the past decade is try to figure out what are the actual things that work. And then, of course, when I took them out of the studio into regular life, I realized these don't just work as interview tips. This just works between human beings in conversation. So that's where it began. Yeah, I think we as journalists actually have an advantage because we get to practice on a daily basis. Absolutely. It's just, I call it my conversational laboratory, right? This is the laboratory. You get to test stuff out. So biologists say that conversation is actually essential to our survival. Yeah. And yet I was coming into the studio today, and sometimes when you're pulling into Grand Central in one train, you parallel track another train. And so I was watching in slow motion all the people sort of going past me. Every single one of them was looking at their phone. Nobody was talking. And... It made me realize, again, that this has become a bit of a lost art. So while we are buried in our devices, how can we satisfy this essential survival need? So you can't while you're buried in your devices, right? I mean, you have to put your phone away. And the interesting thing is is when they've tested this, and and they actually tested people on subways and waiting in doctor's rooms, and they would ask them, we're going to make you chat with strangers, do you think it's going to make you more productive or less productive? Do you make it? Do you think it's going to make you happier or less happy? And you can imagine what everyone said, right? Less productive, more happy. No, they said it's going to make them less productive and irritated, right? They do not want to talk to strangers. People do not like small talk. Okay, so this is just me and people who know me well say it's because I grew up in the Midwest. But I can talk to anybody, and I like it. Okay, so yeah, you're rare, and maybe that's why you're in this profession. But the vast majority of people think that chatting that chat about the weather or whatever with your barista is irritating and a waste of time. And so what did the results of the results, of course, were exactly the opposite. People were happier. That happiness extended throughout their day and they reported being no less productive. Did they report being more productive? Not that I saw. Um, Certainly not the majority of people. The majority said no less productive. But this is the thing is that human beings are social creatures. And you mentioned the fact that this is a survival skill. Human beings are also a hive mind, right? Mm -hmm. We rely on the expertise of other people in order to survive. I don't know exactly how a toilet works. Do you? No exact. Could you? No, I, although I can take the lid off and, and do the thing with the bobber and make it work again. Right. But you could probably not explain in detail. No. How a toilet works. I cannot. That's why you need a plumber. Yes. And we, <laughs> we rely on other people for their expertise. So as the further and further we get away from cooperation and conversation, the further we get away from actually getting the benefit of other people's expertise, all the things they know that we don't know. Including about money. Very much so about money. So we don't like to talk. Yeah. And we, in particular, don't like to talk about things that are hard to talk about. Yeah. So how do we... I mean, it seems to me that it would be a step-by-step process. First, got to get yourself talking, and then you got to get yourself talking about the hard stuff. 
Right. And there's even a, a, a precursor step, right? Because what we've done is we've taken things like talking about money, for example, and we have turned our not talking about money into a virtue. Like, look, you know, this is going to be a fight. I'm just going to take care of it. Or I don't talk to my kids about money because I want them to have a childhood. I don't want them to be thinking about that until they have to, right? We actually turn what is basically a weakness and a deficit into a virtue. So you have to stop doing that first before you can even open up your mouth and even begin that conversation. Stop thinking about this as a good thing. It's not a good thing to not talk about it. And it's true. I think even when you look back as how our parents were raised when when they were told that talking about money was rude, talking yeah. about sex was rude. You know, there were a lot talking about politics. You didn't do it at the dinner table. There are a lot of things that we now have gotten more comfortable with than we have with money. I mean, everybody talks about sex. Everybody talks about politics. I I already did. I know. I did. And I talk about money on this show all the time, and I'm okay with it. But why do you think it is that money is almost the last taboo? It's a really great question, and I'm not sure that we have an answer for that necessarily. Because why should there be so much shame associated with money? Why can't we tell each other what we earn? Right. I mean, we've seen the statistics. We could erase a lot of the income inequality gap for women, at least, Mm -hmm. if we would just be open about what other people are earning. I don't actually have an answer for that. I have not been able to find a single person to explain to me what makes money so shameful, except except for this. And it's not scientific. It's just my gut feeling as having been a reporter for this long. We idolize money to the extent that if someone is wealthy, we think they're right and smart. Mm-hmm. And those are not connected. You can be very wealthy and not be particularly wise. Um, so it has become a, a a character trait to where if you're having struggles with money, suddenly that means you're not as good a person. And someone who is doing well with money is a better person than other people. I have to think that that part of our culture, which is not just American, but particularly American. Yeah. Yeah. I think that has to really feed into it. Yeah. No, I agree with you. I think there's a lot there. And I think the measuring up the relativity of it all is particularly American. I mean, I I, I don't think other cultures measure up quite as much as we do here. And here's an interesting thing, not to go uh, off track for you, but when they were measuring empathy, right? We've been we've been studying empathy among people for a very long time. So they did this interesting study where they would sit people down and they'd say, okay, imagine the the most destitute person you could ever, someone not just homeless, but who has nothing. Now, where on the scale are you above that person? As soon as somebody started thinking about how much further above they were than someone else, their empathy accuracy went into the dumps. They became less empathetic. They were not good at detecting other people's feelings. They were not good at empathizing with other people's suffering. If you do it the other way and you say, okay, imagine Bill Gates is here, right, at the top. Mm -hmm. Where are you below him? As soon as that same person who doesn't have a cent more to their name or less imagines that they're below somebody else on the income scale, suddenly their empathic accuracy goes up. And why is empathy so important in communicating? Because empathy and sympathy are really different, right? Sympathy is saying, I feel for you. It can be toxic because it's pity. Empathy is saying, I feel with you. 
I can find relevant experiences in my life. I can begin to guess at what you must be going through. And I am sorry that you're going through that. That's what empathy is. And it's, again, it's not just, you know, your soft skills everybody hates. It's, it's essential to human cooperation and survival. I want to get to the difference between communication and conversation in a sec, because I think we get caught here, particularly in the financial sphere. Yeah, absolutely. But before I do that, let me just remind everybody that Her Money and conversations like these is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. Fidelity is focused on helping women like all of us take charge of our financial lives and really invested in getting us to start talking about money. So visit fidelity.com slash it's time. You'll find more conversations like this one with Celeste Headley. You'll find information how to manage your money during life's biggest events and most challenging times. Again, that is fidelity.com slash it's time. I'm talking with Celeste Headley, author of We Need to Talk. You say in the book, communication is not conversation. I, I think in the financial space, we put a lot of financial information out there. We are communicating about finance and about how to manage your money in droves. And we're still not talking about it. So can you explain the difference? So it's basically the difference between talking and actually conversing. We are talking more than we ever have, right? We're talking. But in order to have a conversation, you have to have two people both talking and listening and responding to one another. So what you say is going to change what I was going to say next. That requires me to actually listen to you and then respond. And this is the same sort of struggle. What, what you're seeing financial advisors and the financial community going through is similar to what the scientific community is going through, that they're struggling to actually have a conversation, but it's because they're not actually having one, right? They're just talking. Mm -hmm. They're not responding, and they're not listening, and they're not asking questions. So in order to have a real conversation, um, you have to actually listen and then usually you'll have questions about what you just heard, right? If all you're trying to do is educate, that means you're lecturing. It doesn't mean you yourself are learning. And if you're not learning anything out of a conversation, then it's not a conversation. It's just talking. You know, sometimes I think in these conversations, and I'm thinking specifically about the ones with financial advisors, the information comes at us so quickly and so filled with lingo and jargon that it makes it difficult to ask questions because often you're not exactly sure what you heard and asking questions just feels kind of stupid. It's not just in the money field. It's if you're sitting down with a doctor who's talking with you about a diagnosis. I, I rode the train in this morning with a friend who had just been, he went to a doctor's appointment with his father who's about to have a heart procedure, and he went on purpose because he knew that his parents being so stressed out were not going to be able to take in all the information, right. and they needed another person in the room who could actually absorb everything that was being said, which I thought was so smart. It is very smart. How do you deal with the anxiety that is raised when this often technical information, financial, health, whatever, comes at you. So understanding is actually the antidote to anxiety, right? So when I'm sitting down in the, the studio 
And a scientist or somebody uses an acronym or lingo that I know my listeners are not going to understand, I stop them. And I say, whoa, what does that stand for? What does that mean? Explain what you just said before you go any further. I have given up on any need to make someone else think I'm smart. Yeah, well, I have too. I gave that up a long time ago. No, and I will ask every single question I have. And that's a great strategy in life. You know, smart people are sometimes the worst conversationalists they are, that there could possibly be. And we think it's going to be the other way around. But partly it's because they bring logic to an emotional fight, right? A, A conversation is mostly based on emotion. But the other thing is that smart people tend to assume we know what someone is saying. Right. We've heard it all before. We've been in that com- that type of conversation a million times. So we don't even let them finish. Or if we let them finish their sentence objectively, we haven't we're not still listening. They, they get four, four words in and we go, OK, I'll just wait till they're done and then I'll give them the answer. So part of the reasons that these things come up is because either your doctor or your financial planner isn't listening to you. And then you have the wrong doctor or financial exactly. planner. Exactly. That is exactly right. So either you stop and you say, I feel like you're not listening to me because I don't understand anything of what you just said. And here is my intention. Here's what I'm here for. And I need you to explain how you're able to meet my need or not. And part of that comes down to expectations, right? Right. Before you go into that conversation, you need to know what you want out of it. Um, So you have to do your homework. And if that person isn't able to meet that need, you walk away and find someone else. All right. You laid out, and I I just want to get to this before we wrap up today, because I think this information is really important. You lay out five different reasons that we are holding ourselves back in our conversational skills. And I want to talk about each of them because I think making a little adjustment, just tweaking how you handle these things for our listeners can help them walk away from the show and have conversations that really matter. So technology. Right. Your your cell phone, you don't realize how distracting your cell phone is. Even when it's not making any noise, your brain is occupied with thinking about that cell phone, thinking it might make noise. So the first thing I would say is, Turn off your notifications because you do not need to know every time someone retweets you and you don't need to know every time someone likes your post on Facebook and it is distracting your brain. Stop letting that cell phone and stop letting this piece of technology, which is bad at communication, handle your communication. The average American adult spends almost 30 minutes a day texting and six minutes on the phone. So pick up the phone, use the phone sometimes for what it's intended and actually flip that average, right? Talk more than you text. Bias. Okay. So the plain truth is we are all biased. You are biased and I am biased and every single human being on the planet is biased. Um, And you just have to accept that. You have to accept that there's a baseline of bias and you may not even know what they are and you don't need to. You just have to accept that it's there and then say to yourself, okay, I understand that I'm biased, and so therefore I'm going to not try to control this conversation or make assumptions about whether what the person is saying is something I agree with or not at all times. Can you give me an example? Okay. Someone walks in with a Make America Great Again hat, right? You're going to think you know about that person. Yeah. Whether you agree with them or not, you're going to think you know what that person thinks about a lot of things. And the thing is, you don't. You don't actually know. So quit deciding every second, whether you agree with that person or not, and just listen to them. Let them be heard. Okay. 
All right. That makes sense. Um, Multitasking, that ties back to the technology. It does. And that's because human beings cannot multitask. It's impossible for our brains to do more than one task at a time. The attempt to multitask pumps dopamine into your brain and makes you feel really good. So it can become addictive to attempt to multitask. But while you're doing that, while you're listening in on a conference call and answering email, um, research shows that the quality of both tasks goes down by maybe 20% and your IQ drops by 10 points. Are you a believer in the services that you can use online if you're on your computer to shut down the internet while you're doing other things? I have never tried them, but I think that sounds fabulous. Writers use them a lot, you know, because you want to sit down and you want to work on your project for a couple of hours and you don't want to be tempted when... I actually wanted to shut down all of my, like, everything. (laughs) (laughs) That's fantastic. Yeah, okay. All right, cool. Um, Not explaining our expectations. You talked about that a little bit in relation to the financial advisor to the doctor. And it also, you know, when you yourself don't know what your expectations are, you're more likely to try and hit on a billion different things, right? And this comes up in arguments between spouses all the time. You don't actually come in with one intention. So that's where you get this thing where a spouse is bringing up something that happened five years ago and then 10 years ago. You need to focus on what is it that you want out of that conversation? What is it you need out of that conversation? Yeah. Okay. And uh, and that's hard sometimes to get. I mean, because there are times, I mean, when I go to the doctor, I know what I'm going for. And when I go to the financial advisor, because I have one and my listeners know that, I, I usually know what I'm going for. But Although I don't know. Don't. I don't know what I'm aiming to get out of every single conversation. I'm going to work on that. Yeah. And it, it will help you in so many ways because sometimes all you need is just to rant. Right. Right. And so it can become an argument and it was that you just needed an outlet. So I stop myself even in the middle of a conversation. I will stop myself and say, this is not what I wanted or needed at all. And I'm so sorry. Give me a moment because really all I needed was a vent and it has turned into me venting on you instead of with you. And I'm so sorry. (laughs) My 20 year old daughter does that. She is really good. She is really good at saying yeah, this conversation is not going the way I wanted it to go. I'm out of here. Great. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, really good. Kudos to Julia. Yeah. All right, last one. Lack of energy or enthusiasm. You say if you don't bring the energy, don't have a conversation. Yeah, that's right. Because the thing of it is, is that active listening, one thing that we know is that active listening doesn't just feel like it makes you tired. It actually literally burns energy inside your body. So it's okay. If you're exhausted, it is better not to have a terrible conversation that might go badly. You want to bring, and I'm not talking about simple exchanges of information. Right. right. We're talking about actual nuanced conversations where there's any kind of risk involved. If you're not ready for that conversation, excuse yourself. Just be on. And I do this all the time. My staff, all the time. I say, I don't have the brain power for this. My brain's all over the place. I need you to give me 10 or 15 minutes to collect my thoughts. And I walk away. Do you believe in scheduling conversations, important conversations, so that the other person knows that they're about to have this conversation, That's too? part of expectation, right? And if I'm doing that, you know, I, I brought a, an employee into my office, and the very first thing I said was, I'm here to reprimand you, but you are not fired. Done. Then he's going to have a better conversation because he's not sitting there scared to death the whole time. Right. Right. That's because I went into that conversation knowing exactly what my expectation was, and then I shared it. Um, And it just puts you both on a really respectful, open level. 
let them know the outcome first. Exactly. Exactly. Excellent. Well, this has been very educational for me, I have to say. So thank you, Celeste Headley. I look forward to having you back. It's important to understand how to get the most out of these interactions. I agree. Thank you so much. Sure. My pleasure. We'll be right back. Kelly has joined me in the studio. Hey, Kel. Hi, everyone. Do you find that you are more able to have money conversations because you do this job? Like, are you just so over being nervous about talking about money? Absolutely. Really. Because much like we've talked about before with all the other taboos, I've always been really comfortable speaking to them except for money. But when I started working for you, writing and talking about it every single day, I became that friend, that daughter, that family member who is so willing to go there. Yeah. And I'm grateful for that. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. It's great. It's a good skill to have. And it's not one of those things people sometimes say, oh, do you get sick of friends calling you and asking you advice, information? No, I, I sort of feel like this is what we do. I think so, too. I think it's fun. It's really fun. I think it's, it's fun. fun. It's empowering. It, it makes is. you feel it makes you feel when you're not being a jerk, it makes you feel powerful. <laughs> right. <laughs> what do we have? Our first question is from Jackie. My husband and I froze our credit due to the Equifax breach, but we're getting ready to help our daughter with her FAFSA application. Will that credit freeze affect the application? It's a really good question, and the answer is no. The FAFSA, for anybody who's wondering, is the free application for federal student aid. And It comes out beginning of October. You want to get it in as soon as possible. Um, The answer is it doesn't lead to a credit check in and of itself. But when you get your package back of aid offers, you'll see that you've got some scholarships, we hope. You've got some grants. You've got some federal loans, direct loans, subsidized and unsubsidized, but you may also have some PLUS loans in there. PLUS loans, parent PLUS loans and graduate student PLUS loans do trigger a credit check. And so if you are applying for any of those, you're going to need to unfreeze your credit before you go out and put out the applications and then you can refreeze. Save your PIN numbers. Exactly. Save the PIN numbers. Okay, now we have one from Casey. She writes, My husband is considering applying for the Air Force's Health Professional Scholarship Program, which would pay for his dental education plus a stipend while he is in school. After he graduates, he would then have to serve for four years in the Air Force. This is obviously a big decision, but I was wondering if you had any thoughts about the program. Also, if you know anything about military retirement plans and how they work. Sure. So I'm going to give you an answer to your first question and then a resource for your second question. In terms of these armed services programs, both the Air Force and the Army and there are others that will pay for you to go to medical school, dental school, as long as you commit to a certain number of years of service afterwards, my feeling is they are a great deal. I mean, no no question. I have a lot of friends who, after college, went through medical school in that way. However, I think that you've got to look beyond the money. I think these are good programs for people who were intent on serving anyway. And if you weren't intent on serving anyway, I think you should look at other alternatives because although, as I said, these are terrific deals – 
you're talking about serving four years of your life, potentially. And it seems, by the way that your question is worded, that you may be reluctant to do that. And so I just want you to look at your motivation before you go ahead and do this. And and I also want to direct you to Reddit. There are a number of Reddit strings where people who have been parsing these own decisions for themselves or having conversations about how they came to those decisions, go ahead and read them. They're interesting, they're helpful, and they may trigger some thoughts between you and your husband that inspire additional conversation and that make you both comfortable with the decision that you end up making. As far as those military pension options, military retirement options, I wrote a whole book on this. It's called Operation Money, and it's free. If you go to my website, which is genechatsky.com, you can get a free download. It goes into detail on all the military pension plans, and you can pass around word that it's available. So I hope you'll take a look, and I hope that you like it. Thank you, Casey. And our final one is from Mary Jo. My husband and I fell into high credit card debt after a number of things happened, medical bills, unemployment, etc. Fast forward a few years, and we are finally at a place where we can make all of our monthly payments. But with all of the credit card payments, it leaves no extra money each month. I would love to get a consolidation loan to pay off the credit cards, but our credit score isn't great because of past issues. Any suggestions? So even a few points reduction in the high interest rates that I think that you're paying is going to be very, very helpful. And so I wouldn't focus on having to consolidate at the lowest possible interest rate. I would focus on reducing your interest rates from what you have, seeing if you can free up some breathing room to allow you to save that money and moving on from there. And you can do that in a couple of ways. First of all, you've done a noble job, a really good job at getting yourself to this point so that you know you have the fortitude to do this. Call those credit card companies that you have gotten back on track with. Ask if they will either lower the interest rate that you're already paying or give you a balance transfer if they happen to be one of the lower priced cards in your portfolio. Then you can transfer the higher balances over there and you'll know that you'll have bought yourself some breathing room. You also may want to look at consolidation loans, not just with credit card companies and banks, but also at credit unions. Sometimes their interest rates can be even lower than the ones with banks. And don't give up. Do this right now. In six months from now, if you've continued to pay on time, do it again. Your credit score is a snapshot of where you happen to be right now. And the most recent months are the most important information. So six months from now, if you stay on target, your credit score could be substantially better than it is right now. And six months from then, you're going to want to do it again. But good job. Is a consolidation loan taking all of your debt and putting it onto one card? No. A consolidation loan is usually taking all your debt and putting it into a loan with a bank. Uh But a balance transfer to a card with a lower rate is a way to accomplish pretty much the same thing without taking out a consolidation loan. 
Got it. Okay. Thank you. Sure. And thanks, everybody, for your questions. Please keep them coming. You can get us at jeanchatsky.com. That's where most people send us questions. But we're also on Twitter, on Facebook, on LinkedIn. Instagram. Inst- we everywhere. Are on, we, are, we are everywhere. And in today's Thrive segment, inspired by our earlier conversation with Celeste Headley, I'd like to end this week's show with an important conversation that you should be having with yourself. Are you feeling burned out? Being burned out seems to have become a new and a very dangerous norm. We've got some research from the General Social Survey of 2016, which is a nationwide survey that has tracked the attitudes and behaviors of Americans since 1972, and it found half of all the respondents say they are consistently exhausted compared with 18% just two decades ago. And the reason seems to be a very common one. Yes, it's work. So here's what I want you to do. First, focus on your breathing. Concentrating on your breathing taps into something called your parasympathetic nervous system, and that alone helps you reduce the amount of stress that you're feeling. Two, take breaks. Ideally, you want to take five-minute breaks for every 20 minutes that you spend on a single task because, as Celeste said, we are not going to be multitasking anymore. We are going to be monotasking or sitting at your desk. Every 20 minutes, just get up and walk around the corridor. Three, talk with a trusted mentor. Having somebody at work with whom you can just get honest about the fact that you are feeling this way about work will go a very long way. And finally, Do your best to get outside of work. Find a hobby or an interest unrelated to your work that you can enjoy outside the office. Even regular exercise applies here. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Celeste Headley for a great conversation, and I mean that literally. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We want to know what you think. Of course, we want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. Our music is provided by Track Tribe. Our show comes to you through PRX. Join us next week. We'll be talking with Dr. Nancy Snyderman about the twists and turns her career has taken since she left NBC News. We'll talk soon.